you have a Bible, if you turn to Joshua chapter 1, I'm going to look at Joshua today, and we're going to title the message, We Conquer by Trusting God's Promises. So, and let's pray. Father, we're gathered here to hear your word, and your word is how you speak to us, how you change our lives, and how we come to know you more, Lord, and, and we just thank you that you'll do all that for us today, and that we can hear your voice and be encouraged to trust you more, and I thank you that you'll do that for us in Jesus' name. So in Joshua chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. Be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. But you shall meditate therein day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have not I commanded you? Be strong and of a good courage, and be not afraid. Neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with you whithersoever thou goest." So Joshua is the first book that is a book that is named after its main character. So there's other books in the Bible that are named after their main characters like Ruth and Job and Nehemiah and Daniel. They're named after their main characters, but it's been pointed out that it's kind of funny, the first five books, the Pentateuch, I mean, there are some of the greatest people, characters of the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Moses, Joseph, and yet none of those books are named after those men. And when you get here to Joshua, I think the Holy Spirit inspired that to be named after him because otherwise he probably would have been overshadowed by Moses. Because Moses is named 11 times just here in this first chapter. He's named 57 times in the book of Joshua. Everybody knows about Moses. It's like everybody knows about President Lincoln. Can anybody name who was the president before Lincoln? I know, but I had to look it up. James Buchanan. That's one of those Jeopardy questions. But they named the book Joshua. And it's like the Lord saying, well, you know, you've heard of Moses. You've heard of him. And here's what the Bible says about him. It says, there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And in all that mighty hand and in all the great terror which Moses showed in the sight of all Israel. I mean, think your common person on the streets heard of Moses. You've heard of Moses, but he's saying, have you heard of Joshua? So Joshua is a type of Christ. In fact, Moses 
actually changed his name, I believe it was Numbers 13, and changed it to Joshua, which means Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. So he was, though, a great and faithful leader in Israel. And I would recommend that any young person in here, well, any person for that matter, but a young person, it would be worth your while to take the time to study his life because he was a great person. And it says there in verse 1, Joshua at the end, Joshua the son of Nun was Moses's minister. It was like he was his right hand man. It's like he carried Moses's bag, so to speak. In fact, when I was at the seminary, there was a guy that a visiting professor pastor that came and we all met in this big auditorium. And as he comes in, he's got this young guy with him as a and he's carrying his bag. I'm thinking, wow, I think I could have carried my own bag in. But but that's what he did. So it's not so much that you know, Joshua was carrying Moses' goatskin satchel around. I, I don't know it's so much that, but that he was a willing servant to Moses and a willing learner, took whatever job Moses gave him to do. So let's look at the first place Joshua was mentioned. I do want to look at that and turn back to Exodus 17. This is the first place in the Bible that Joshua was mentioned. Exodus 17. So here in Exodus 17, the people have been complaining and questioning whether God's presence is with them. They're complaining they don't have any water. And so we have here in verse 7 of Exodus 17, it says, And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord. They're questioning, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And so the Lord supplied them with water, but while they're in this mode where they're questioning about whether the Lord's with them, here come the Amalekites. And we'll look there beginning in verse 8. The Amalekites come to fight him. And it says, And then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And verse 9, Moses said unto Joshua, Choose out men, first time he's mentioned, and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses had said unto him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hand, the one on the one side, the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun." And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book. And rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of the place Yahweh Nisi. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. What caused Moses... First of all, to choose Joshua of all the people to be the first one to lead Israel's army. And it doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us why anywhere. But I'm sure that Moses saw his character. He probably wasn't a complainer, willing to do whatever was needed to be done. And he somehow could see that God's hand was on his young life and that he was different. And that's what I would say to the young people here. When you're a young person, now is the time to get deep convictions about the Lord and about his word and about how you're going to walk with him. Don't wait until you're older. Don't think you're going to get deep later because you won't. You need to be and look like Daniel and the Hebrew boys. They had their convictions built into them. Then when they were in a culture 
that was anti-Christ, anti-God, they were able to stand their ground even to the point they were willing these young men to defy the king. And that's the kind of character I think we see here in Joshua. Or think about Timothy. He was a young man, but he also had strong convictions. Paul was ready to put him in leadership position. And why was that? It's Mother's Day, isn't it? And he was that way because of his mother and grandmother. Early on, they got the word in him. And that's important, us parents. You've got little kids, mid-sized kids, any-sized kids. It's never too late. We have a responsibility to get the word in our children. It's no one else's responsibilities but ours. And Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy about Timothy. He says, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, Timothy, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice, he says, and I am persuaded that it is in thee also. And he goes on in Timothy and tells how that faith got there. Because it's just like what Romans 10, 17 tells us. Faith comes by hearing the word because he goes on in 2 Timothy 3, 15. He says to Timothy that from a child, from a little child, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So we speculate that Timothy probably had a Greek father. More than likely he did. But he had a godly mother and grandmother that got the word in him. And if he had any sisters, the word would have been in them. And that's how you have these young men coming up with character. It's important that we do that with our children, okay? But getting back to this account in Exodus 17, what I want us to see, there's also a principle here, which is why I went to this, that Joshua learned something early on. And he learned he doesn't have any military experience whatsoever. He's been a slave all his life, and he's leading a bunch of ex-slaves that have no military experience, never been in warfare, and they're fighting a, a hardened army, the Amalekites. And I would say, what chance did they have? And if you went by ability, they had absolutely no chance at all. And yet, Moses appoints Joshua, tells him, you pick out some young men, and you go fight these guys. They never fought at all. And he had to learn something. And this is something we need to learn. He learned that victory didn't come because of his military wisdom. How could he have even had any? It didn't come because of his courage, Joshua's courage, or Joshua's strength, but it only came from the Lord and trusting in the Lord's power because it's only as Moses held up that rod that they had victory. And what did that rod represent? <laughs> That was the rod that brought the plagues down on Egypt. That's the rod that he held out that parted the Red Sea. It's the Lord's banner. It represents the Lord's power. Because when that rod went down, guess what? They're going to get soundly defeated. There's nothing to that army. It's a joke. But with the power of God, it's not a joke. And that's what they need to see. And so what does that represent him with those two arms up there holding the Lord's banner? That's Moses' intercession. Intercession. Now, we know the Lord Jesus Christ intercedes for us at all times, and we can take comfort in that promise, can't we? Amen. You're in a trial. You say, man, nobody else might not be praying for me. It's 3 in the morning. They all might be. But Jesus is, if you're trusting him. But also, he needed to have help holding those hands up, didn't he? They had to help him. Because guess what? Intercession, if you really are interceding for somebody, it's hard work. It really is. 
That's telling us there, God will give the victory, won't he? But how did he give the victory? How was that banner held up? The Lord, our banner, through intercession. And then Aaron and her have to prop it up too. And that's where the church comes in. Amen? Amen. We've had brothers and sisters here in some trials, and everybody has, as far as I know, been really good about joining in prayer. And you see deliverance coming. Maybe not the total deliverance from their trial, but deliverance are coming out of those situations. Amen? And I think that's what we need to learn here. It's not our courage, our faith, our wisdom, but it's God who prevails. Here's what we need to see. God didn't want Joshua to ever forget that. We talked last week about memorials that God sets up. And look what it says, verse 14 down there. He told Moses, the Lord said unto Moses, I want you to write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. Keep repeating it to him. Don't let him forget that. Encourage him with that because he's going to be going into some extreme warfare in the future. The Lord knew that. And he's saying he doesn't want Joshua to ever forget. It has nothing to do with you, Joshua. You're not some great military man. Throughout Joshua's life, we could go through. He's the one. He's one of the spies. We know that, right? He came back. He's got the good report. He's got faith in God. He climbs the mountain with Moses. He's got an interest in God. He's there when he comes down from the mountain. And he sees Moses in the tabernacle. He's also got a heart for God there. He's like, man, he's communing with God. Everybody else is probably, you know, on their Facebook, Internet, Twitter, whatever they're doing. Oh, he's saying, this is where I want to be right here. This is all that matters as a young man. And there he was. So all his life, Joshua has seen God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises. He was right there when God promised deliverance from Egypt's crucible where they've got his people, they're oppressing his people. He knew the promise, and he saw God deliver them in a mighty way. He's standing there with everybody else on the Red Sea, isn't he? And God says, hey, fear ye not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And was God faithful with that promise? Oh, man, he delivered them in a way you could have never imagined. How would they have known that would happen? They're at that sea. All they're thinking is, man, we are doomed. All of a sudden, bam, that rods out. And Joshua's seeing all of that. He's seeing God's faithfulness. He saw through experience how God provided manna in the desert, water, clothes that didn't wear out, healing. They had several battles that they had victory in. And so he knows from experience, Joshua does, that when God gives a promise, he is always faithful to fulfill it. And we're going to see in this book, that's his motivation to move forward. That's what carried him on. That's what this book is all about. God fulfilling his promises. And that's what today's message is about. The formula for how to have God fulfill his promises in your life, so to speak. So turn back to Joshua 21. At the end of the book. So Joshua starts off and he's standing there on the river with Moses dead saying, what am I going to do? And God says, trust in me. And here's what we have. You look in Joshua 21, look at verse 43, and it says, And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. And the Lord gave them rest round about according to all that he sware unto their fathers. All that he promised to the fathers. And there stood not a man of all of their enemies before them, 
the Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Verse 45, there failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had promised or spoken unto the house of Israel. What does it say there at the end? All came to pass. So he starts off saying, I've seen God's faithfulness. I've seen his promise. He's promised to give us this land. As he's standing there at the beginning of this book, none of it's conquered. But he's saying here at the very end, every single thing that God ever promised came to pass. You can bank on it. Amen. And look over in chapter 23 and verse 14. Joshua 23, 14. And Joshua says, behold, this day I'm going the way of all the earth. It means he's going to die. And he says, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. He says it again. All are come to pass unto you and not one thing has failed thereof. Can we look at God's promises and say that and know that that's true? That's what the Bible says. That happened with Israel. We can't say it's never happened. It happened with them, didn't it? Every single thing came to pass. So if you go back to Joshua chapter 1. So because God is faithful, we can be fearless and we can conquer what he's given us. We can take what he's given us. And so the first thing we see here in verses 1 through 4 is that we can conquer because God's promises are enduring. And look what it says there. Look, what a way to begin a book after the death of Moses. I mean, you don't start most books off that way, do you? But what it's doing is it's connecting it to the previous book where we just read about Moses being buried by the Lord. No one knows where. And so here Moses is off the scene. And Moses was, past tense, a great man. But he's dead. And here's what we need to see. The promises of God for them to inherit the land. It didn't begin with Moses and the promises didn't end with Moses either. Because when had God made the promise? The promise is enduring. God had made the promise to Abraham long ago, hundreds of years ago back in Genesis 12. And that promise endured long after Moses is off the scene. So in other words, Moses may die, but the promises live on, don't they? That's the point. John Wesley said, God buries his workmen and his work goes on. That's what happens. And so he's telling him here, look, verse two, he says, the Lord says to Joshua, Moses, my servant is dead. He's dead. He says, but look, it's not over. There is still a land to possess. And he tells him, get up and go take what I have given you. So here's the point. People may die. Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, or Paul, all those people pass away. Spurgeon, Wesley, Wigglesworth, Billy Graham. He isn't dead yet, but he's not far off. But all of those people can pass away. But God's promises never die. God's faithfulness never has an end. And that's what we need to see. So Joshua is what he's looking at here. You've got to put yourself in his shoes. He's standing here on the other side of the river, needing to get to the other side. And we know from chapter 3 that the river is swollen. It's a swollen river, not like it looks today. It looks like you could just easily take two skips and a jump and be over the Jordan River today. But it's a swollen river. And God's telling him, get ready to cross it. Well, he doesn't have Moses' rod. What's he going to do? He doesn't know how that's going to happen. And he didn't do it exactly the same way Moses did anyways. And he's seen the cities. He knows what's on the other side if they do happen to get across this river. He's seen the cities and the people. They're huge. 
They would seem like an insurmountable obstacle to him. But here's the thing. God said, I have given you a gift. I've given you all an inheritance. He's promised to them. And the question only is, is are they going to rise up and take what is theirs? To use an old expression, are they going to possess their possessions? Like I said, it's already theirs. All they have to do is what? They have to arise and go. So they can't just be there standing on the promises, can they? They have to get off the promises and go take them, right? You can't always be standing on the promises. Sometimes you have to go take them because when we stand still, when we stand still in our walk with the Lord, we're going backwards in all respects because faith has motion. Arise, go take the land, step out by faith. Each tribe's got an allotted portion given to them. God's given each of us an allotted portion. He's given us, it says everyone in his body has some kind of gift for the church. He's given everybody a gift. There's sinners within our sphere of influence that we're around. That's our portion, so to speak, of the land, our inheritance, to conquer in the name of the Lord. Our children need salvation. What about our own personal life? So there's a walk inward and a walk outward. I'm saying we have a life of holiness, a heart that needs conquered, our own heart, the sin in our heart. God says, I've given you that land. It's conquered. You have to go and take it. And so we need to move forward and trust God. If you're going to always wait for everything, for him to somehow divinely compel you to go, you'll never get anywhere. They'd all just still been sitting on the other side of the Jordan. So Hebrews 3 and 4 tells us that we have to mix faith with his promises and enter into his rest. Isn't that what it says? So Canaan is a type of that rest. Experiencing what? We've been taught this, the fullness of Christ. And here's how it comes to us. Paul says, or whoever wrote Hebrews 4.11 says, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So it's a labor. It's a fight, which seems like a contradiction, to enter into the rest that God has given us. But that's what the Bible teaches. And we have to mix faith with those promises to inherit that rest. So we as Christians, we already have an inheritance just like they did. And we have to make it a reality in our lives. So we're told in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, it says, has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's not waiting to do it. It says in Ephesians 1 that God has. It's in the past tense. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. So it was secured on the cross. We've heard this before, haven't we? Is it that become a boring message for us? Because it's still the truth. Even if we have heard it before, everything was secured on the cross. Our forgiveness, our healing, our deliverance from sin, everything we have has already been secured for us. We have to possess it, though, through our faith. So does healing depend on having a ministry come and pray for you, finding somebody that has that gift or whatever? Or does healing depend on the cross and God's faithfulness? Isn't that what it really depends on? Amen. Doesn't it depend on what we have written right up there that surely he has borne our pains? He has done it? Amen. Isn't that where our healing's at? We're not waiting to be healed That's right. as Amen. we've been taught. So many of the promises are put in the past tense. Galatians 3 says, Christ 
has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree that the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. We're not waiting to be redeemed from the curse. Do we see that? You're like, well, man, I feel like I am. Well, what you need to see is the devil has put something on you. What the Bible says is if it's the curse, how can the curse be on you and on the Lord Jesus Christ at the same time? It can't be. And so you have to deny his right to do that to you. He bore the curse for us, so we don't have to bear it. I'll read it again. Christ has redeemed us, bought us back from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us on our behalf. So faith says, hey, it doesn't matter what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing. The devil has no right to put it on me. It has to go. That's what faith says. I'm going to step out there. It doesn't matter that this giant seems to be living in the land. God says, every place you step your foot on, it's yours, and that means somebody has to go. Amen. That's right. I have given you the land. I have redeemed you from the curse. Amen. Amen. That's, right. <laughs> That's kind of the way it works. So we need to take our land, what he's given us. How do we take it? Do we get it all at once? I don't think so. I don't think anybody comes to spiritual maturity all at once. A lot of people think they do and think they can, but that's not the way it works, does it? So trials come our way, and it's through those trials it exposes our inner workings, our inner problems, the things we need help with. And through those trials and, and overcoming difficulties is how that fruit is brought to fullness. And it happens little by little is how God does the work in us. He doesn't do it all at once. You look at verse 3, what it says, he says, Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, God says, I'm going to give it to you then. Is that what he says? He says, I've already given it to you. What your foot treads on, he says, I have already given unto you, as I said unto Moses. So when they're getting into that land, that's not when they're given the gift. They're given the gift before they ever get there. All they're doing is opening up the package and enjoying it, so to speak, right? The gift's already been given. Now, they had to fight for it, didn't they? Just like we have got to fight for what he's given us, don't we? We need to fight. Sometimes you've got to intercede, fight. You've got to press in past negative circumstances. It's still true. But the thing is, just like with them, they're not going in there fighting, hoping that they might win. Thinking, man, this is bad. I think I'm going to have to give up here after a little bit. Because if they had that promise, God says, I have given it to you. You fight. You're fighting from a place of victory. It doesn't matter how the battle's going. You're guaranteed victory. And that's how they conquered the land, because you read through Judges, and they did a really good job at first. But Joshua, before he died, they hadn't got every little nook and cranny, and they started giving up. They started backsliding. They started quitting, and they quit fighting. And then they were content to let the enemy that God said, I will cast him out and destroy him. They were content to let the enemy stay with them. And that's what happened. So we've got to be willing to war. Amen. Sit it with a smile. Got to be willing to battle. Second thing we see here is that we can conquer because God promises us his presence. And we see that in verse 5. The Lord says this. He's saying it to Joshua, but he's saying it to all of Israel. There shall not any man be able to stand before you all the days of your life. He says, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. And look down in verse 9. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid. 
be not thou dismayed. Why? For the Lord thy God is with you whithersoever you go. And look in verse 17. According as he hearkened unto Moses and all things, so we will hearken unto thee only. The Lord thy God be with you as he was with Moses. And so Joshua needed that encouragement, didn't he? He needed that encouragement that there shall not a man be able to stand before you all the days of your life. You know why? Because there was quite a few men on the other side of that river that were willing to stand against him with their armies. He had to come against 31 kings he's going to fight. And a lot of times they would combine their forces. So he needed that encouragement, didn't he? It's going to be a tough job. But God's not telling him through that. He's saying, look, I'm not saying, Joshua, you're just going to walk on in there. It's just going to be a piece of cake. Does anybody in here think their Christian walk has been like that? No opposition? He's telling Joshua, you're going to have opposition. I'm just telling you that opposition is not going to be able to stand before you. And why, God says? Because I am with you. Amen. So it doesn't matter what the opposition is. It has nothing to do with you. It's all because of God's presence. He says, as I was with Moses, look what all I did with Moses. Look at all the miracles and deliverance. He said, just like that, Pharaoh, the greatest nation on earth and his army, God says, I took care of him. You didn't have to do a thing, but trust me. And as I was with Moses, my presence, my angel will go before you. He's the one fighting your battles. He's the one, remember, with the rod. Amen. That's right. The angel of the Lord will go before him. So God had promised Moses he would be with him way back in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. He says, I'll be with you. I'll go with you before Pharaoh. Moses, he didn't like that idea. He said, no, I'll be with you. And then he revealed to him his name, Yahweh. I am that I am. It's a theological shorthand for I will be with you because I'm always here. I never change. I don't die. I don't get old. My power doesn't decrease with time like people. And so God was mightily with Moses. The miracles he performed. But the thing is, Moses is dead now. He's died. But Yahweh hasn't changed. Amen? He is the great I am, and his presence is still going with his people. And he said this, he says, I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Will not fail thee. No, it's at the end of verse 5 there. As I was with Moses, verse 5, so he says, I will be with you. And he tells the people this in Joshua. He says, I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. That fail in Hebrew means literally to drop or allowed to sink is what it means. And you get the picture of somebody's out there, they're drowning, they're helpless, and some guy goes out and he's helping them and they still can't swim and they're still helpless and at some point he just, just lets them go. And then they just helplessly drown. They're like, man, I thought I had help, but the, the dude let me go. And God says, I will never do that to you. And aren't there times, man, there's been times in my life where I feel like I'm driving God, please, Peter in the water. He didn't just let him drown, did he? And he's saying that to us. You may be having a tough time. And he says, I am not going to just have my arm around you, carrying you, and then just all of a sudden let you go. Too bad. He says, I'll never do that. I'll never fail you, drop you, leave you, or forsake you. He says he never does that. And he's always, that's just the way God is, our God that we serve. If you've given your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, that's his promise. That's the way he is. And he's always been that way. Genesis 26 with Isaac. Isaac's back. He's digging wells. He needs some water. 
He needs some life from God. It represents the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's digging those wells. And you know what happened? The Philistines keep coming behind and they're plugging them up. Three times that happens. He digs a well. Ah, here's God. Nope, they plug him up. He moves on to the next one. Digs another well. I got water. Life from God. Plug him up again. Three times. Finally, he gets far enough away from him. You know what happens? They leave him alone. And he's got the refreshing water from God. Isn't that what we need? Amen. That's what I'm believing for here. And you know what happened? God appeared to him. Because Isaac had to be wondering, you know, man, you want me to be in this land, but everywhere I go, I can't get water for my livestock. I want to live here, but I can't live somewhere that's dead all the time. And God appears to him after he gets that water, and he said this. He says, I am the God of Abraham, thy father. He tells him, he says, fear not, Isaac, for I am with you. And he says, I will bless you. And guess what? From there on out, he did. He's faithful. And blessed him, why? Because his presence was with him. And three times, Jacob, his son, God appeared to Jacob in Genesis 28, Genesis 31, and Genesis 46. And God, every time he appears to him, he says, I'm going to be with you, Jacob. Tells him, you go back to your land now. It's time to go back. He says, I'll be with you and I will keep you. And Jacob's all right. And he goes back. But then as he's going back, here comes Esau with his massive army. He's going to wipe him out. And he's struggling with that promise at that point, like we do at times, don't we? Struggle with believing that. I, I hear it, Lord. I hear what you're saying. Jacob's intent on killing him, but God kept his word. But that didn't mean Jacob didn't have to wrestle. He wrestled one night with the angel, didn't he? And God changed Esau's heart. Never left him. Always faithful to his word. That's what God promises that he'll do. And that promise of God's abiding presence, it's not just for the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not just for Moses. It's not just for Joshua and Israel as they go into the land. It's for all saints at all times. It's for every believer that is in this room. The same promise of God's presence. If you would, put something there in Joshua 1 and turn back to Hebrews 13. It's familiar, but let's read it. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. Hebrews 13, 5, he says, Let your conversation, let it be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. Why? He says, For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, so that we may boldly say, boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And it doesn't come across in our English translations, but there are five negatives there in the Greek for emphasis. And that literally would translate, I will never, ever leave thee, neither will I never, ever forsake thee. And that's God's cure for covetousness and discontentment. What he's saying there is you will never lack. You may think at times you're going to lack. You may think at times you need to fear and do something about it. And he says, no, I will always be with you, just like I was with Isaac. He never lacked. I gave him what he needed. I was with Jacob. I was with Joshua. I was with Moses. He'll give us whatever help we need. We have his word for that, don't we? Amen. So David Livingstone, great missionary to Africa. Dr. Livingstone, I presume you've all heard that saying, right? Well, that was him. His story is amazing. He's a great missionary. 
Well, Mr. Livingstone, he died kneeling at his bedside. And as he was kneeling there on the bed was his little pocket Bible, and it was lying open at the last page of Matthew's Gospel. And in the margin of that Bible, in one of the verses, it was pointing to it, Livingston had written this in his own hand, the words of a gentleman. The words of a gentleman, words he could trust. And you know what the words were? It was Matthew 28, 20. Lo, I am with you always. And that's what he trusted to get him through Africa. And God never let him down. And Paul needed that same encouragement when he was in Corinth on a missionary journey. They're upset with him with what he's preaching. They're getting on him for blasphemy. He's thinking, man, I've been getting beat up quite a bit here on these missionary journeys. And he must have been afraid because the Lord Jesus Christ appears to him in a vision personally. And it says, and the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? The Lord tells him, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he stood there and stayed in that place and preached for a year and a half. Saw a lot of converts because that's what God had promised him. And the reason he was able to do that, it's not because they didn't want to do him harm. He said, I'm going to be with you. My presence will be with you. Nobody's going to mess with you, Paul. Rest in that appeared to him. And that's what Paul trusted in. Nothing more assuring to any of us as Christians than to hear the Lord speak to us and say, I will be with you. Those are comforting words, and that's what he tells us. We just read them in Hebrews 13, 5 to 6. So back to Joshua 1. It's because of that, God's presence, that Joshua and Israel were commanded to be strong and of good courage. Look down in verse 9. He says, have I not commanded you? This is a command. God says to them, he says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of a good courage, neither be afraid, neither be dismayed. Why? He says, for the Lord thy God is with you. That's why you can be strong of a good courage, not afraid or dismayed. The Lord thy God is with you whithersoever you go. Because Israel had a tough and fearful task ahead of them, didn't they? Just like we do at times. In the New Testament, Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like Men, be strong. That's what Paul said at the end of 1 Corinthians. Act like men. Be strong. 1 Timothy 1.7, he writes to Timothy. Timothy must have been a timid soul. He says, for God, Paul writes to him, has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So listen, everybody's got problems and nobody likes a whining Christian. Amen. You know, we took a trip with the Baptist brethren, the seminary, over to Europe. And I will say the one thing I was impressed with was, and that's just what the, that leadership there instilled in those guys, except the only people complaining were the adults that were coming from outside the seminary and tagged along the trip. But none of those students, for the most part, they all just kept a good attitude and didn't complain. And I liked that. I really did appreciate it. I thought, well, man, that's like the people at church. Because that's the way we've been. We've been raised in the word to not complain, but to trust the Lord. And that's the right way to be. You know, Job is in the midst of his trial, lost all his kids. He's lost all his health. He's lost about everything. And his wife's on his case. And God comes to him at the end and he says, now prepare yourself like a man. 
because I've got some questions for you, and you're going to answer them, Job. He did that twice to Job. Come on, stand up and be a man. And how is that? How are we able to do that? He telling Joshua, come on now. This isn't the time to mourn about Moses. They did that for 30 days. He said, you stand up now, arise, and here's that river, and you get ready, and you're going to go over the river. Be strong. Go. Fight. Be courageous, he's telling him and the people. Amen. That's what you have to do. And he says, why? He says, because I'm with you. Amen. That's why you can do that, and that's how we need to approach our trials. Now, that's easier said than done. I understand how all that works. But he also tells them there in verse 9, he says, don't be dismayed. And that word dismayed means to be shattered or discouraged. And we're all tempted at times to be discouraged, aren't we? It is a temptation. But listen to this story here. John Payton, I've got, I think, even two of them back there. If it was me, I'd read them. It's a thick biography, but he's an amazing man. So he goes on the mission field with his wife. They get there, and they're both healthy as can be. The New Hebrides. And they both hope for a long life and serving the Lord and seeing these heathen. They call them heathen. They want to see these heathen soundly saved. They go, it's, they're, they're amongst cannibals. And he said, I made a mistake. He looks back, I made a mistake. I went there at the rainy season. No one told me not to. I didn't know any better. And his wife got sick, got a fever. She just had their baby and she dies. Two weeks later, their little boy, his first little boy, and he loved her. They loved each other. He dies too. And he's saying, if I hadn't known, there was just strong affirmation that God had sent me to that place. Listen to what he said. He said, but I was never altogether forsaken. He was stunned at the loss. He said, but I was never altogether forsaken. The ever merciful Lord sustained me to lay the precious dust of my beloved ones in the same quiet grave. And listen to what he says. But for Jesus and the fellowship he vouchsafed me there, he said, I would have gone mad. But he said the presence of the Lord came to him. I, you have to read the book. Got a whole section in there. God came to him and just let him know he was his own, that he was with him. And he did a great work there. But that's how it started. Neither be dismayed, God says, for I am with you. And if that man can overcome that, there's a lot of things we can overcome. Amen. So the third thing I want to look at here is we can conquer because God promises success if we live by his word. And that's verses seven and eight. He says, only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law, which Moses, my servant, commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper whithersoever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. But you shall meditate therein day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then, he says, then you will make thy way prosperous and then you shall have good success. So he promises that our way will be prosperous and we'll have good success. And who doesn't want that? I mean, everybody wants success and prosperity, even though I don't think he's necessarily here talking about financial prosperity. I mean, it could include that, but I don't think that's specifically what he's getting at here. I think he's saying everything you endeavor for the kingdom of God will prosper and succeed. And how does that happen? We've got the, he says, carefully observe the law, or it's really the Torah. The Torah. When you think about the law, you think about it as being a bunch of detailed set of rules that are just going to show you how you're wrong. So we look at the law, we hear the law, and it becomes our enemy because we think all it's going to do is condemn us. But the word law or Torah, it means instruction or direction. 
And so God gave Moses, when he gave him the Pentateuch, the first five books, the law, the Torah, he gave it, he's saying, look, here's an objective standard that you can live your lives by. And what that's going to do is, that means everybody can't just do what they feel like doing, like what they do today. Your whims or your feeling or some crazy person is going to stand up in your midst and say, yeah, if you're a man, change yourself into a woman and that's great. So that ain't going to happen because we've got an objective standard to live by, don't we? We can know what God expects, how he wants us to live. We don't have to go by new revelations being given. Look, we have to understand that this book, the law, even the commandments are given to us by a loving God for direction in our life in a good way. So the problem is a sinful heart, isn't it? So look, if you would, please look, uh, put something there and look in Psalm 119. And I want to look at a couple places there to show that the psalmist wasn't having a problem. Psalm 119, verse 97. Psalm 119, 97, he says, Oh, how I love thy law. Wow, it is my meditation. Isn't that what he said? You need to meditate in it day and night all the day. Thou through thy commandments has made me what? Wiser. How's he done that? Through the law, through the commandments. Has made me wiser than mine enemies. For they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For thy testimonies, once again, are my meditation. He says, I understand more than the ancients. Why? Because I keep thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments, for you have taught me. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And he says, through thy precepts I get understanding, and therefore I hate every false way. Do you get the impression that the psalmist is burdened by the law or the word or wants to avoid it? He's saying there, oh, how I love thy law, verse 97. And look over in verse 129. He says there, thy testimonies are wonderful, therefore does my soul keep them. The entrance of thy words give light. It gives understanding unto the simple. And look in verse 140. He says, thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loves it. He says, I am small and despised, yet, he says, I do not forget thy precepts. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is truth. Trouble and anguish have taken hold on me, yet, even despite that, look what he says, thy commandments are my delights. The righteousness of thy testimony is everlasting. He says, give me understanding, and what? I shall live. So I don't get for reading that, that the law is a burden to the psalmist. Instead, he's saying it's what? He's saying it's the delight of his heart. Because here's what we need to see. It's liberating wisdom, not a burden that is coming from God. Liberating wisdom that leads to life. You see that? That's the way of looking at that. And here, Joshua, you know, he's there with Moses the whole time. Moses is writing down that Pentateuch, those first five books. And I'm sure they talked about it. And he knew Moses was a just man, just a man, a just man, but a man with limitations and faults. Yet he knew that this was the revelation that God had given him, special revelation to guide his steps along the way. So he respected, knew, and I believe loved the word, and he knew that the law was given to Moses. So back to Joshua 1, there's two things God wants us to do with this law that he's given, this law or this instruction. In verse 8, it says this. 
this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, he says, but you shall meditate therein day and night. Now, isn't that funny? He says, this book of the law shall not depart out of our mouth. And you're like, well, usually I keep my Bible on a shelf or on my nightstand, not in my mouth. That's what he's saying there. Don't let the book of the law depart out of thy mouth. To meditate on it, the reason he's saying mouth, to meditate on it means literally to mutter in a low mutter. Today, Americans in the West, we read silently to ourselves, don't we? But for centuries, for most of history, people would read out loud. And you go to the Wailing Wall today, and those rabbis there, they're muttering the word, saying it over and over and over again. And so that's what it's talking about with meditating, repeating it over and over. And so we need to not just do our few verses, our few chapters, whatever it is we're reading for the day, but we need to read it and then roll it over and over in our minds. As a man said, you want to suck all the juice out of it that you can. That's what he's talking about here, because then it becomes part of you. And when we do that, what are we doing? So what does it say? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. So when we meditate and roll that word over in our mind, get our understanding enlightened, that's what we're doing. We're loving God with all of our minds. So it's studying to understand, chewing, to be nourished. So you don't get nourished by going to the cattleman's restaurant and memorizing the menu, do you? You have to eat the food. And so the Bible says man does not live by bread alone, but he lives, he feeds, he chews on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we have two sources of influence in our lives, don't we? It's either the world or the word of God. And if you would just briefly turn over to Psalm 1, we'll see that. Two sources of influence in our lives. And look, that's what he's saying here. I'm not going to preach this whole psalm, but look what it says. Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the man. Here's the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. That's an influence. A blessed man is not going to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He's not going to stand in the way of sinner. There's a progression here. Walking, standing, sitting. Sitting is where you're sitting there and you're one of these people that are all over the internet that sit there and mock and make a fun of Christians. And that's as low as it gets. But that's what's happening in America. But he says, ah, the blessed man won't do that. But what does it say? Here's their end. You want that counsel to be the counsel of the ungodly, to be in your mind, influencing your life? It says in verse 4, the ungodly, they're not like the godly. They're like the chaff that just gets blown away with the wind. There's nothing to them. And look in verse 5, it says, Therefore the ungodly, they shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. That's what happens when you let yourself be influenced by the world and all that happens. That's where you'll end up. That's what this is saying. But in contrast to that, look what it says in verse 2. Here's what the blessed man will do, the godly man. Verse 2, it says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, same thing. This is to all Christians then, not just Joshua, just not, not just Israel, all Christians. In his law does he meditate day and night. And he shall then be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. And whatsoever, just like he said to Joshua, whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So we need to let the word influence our thinking. And when we read for understanding, not to just go through the motions, 
When you have the world influencing your thinking, you start doing the things of the world, desiring the things of the world, going to the places the world goes. Isn't that the way it works? And he's saying, you let that word get in there like you do the world and let that start influencing your thinking and reading for understanding and meditating, then we're going to be motivated to obey God, to trust God, to live a holy life. And it'll be our delight and not a burden. So back to Joshua 1, the second thing he wants us to do, he says we need to meditate on it. And in verse 7, he says, only thou be strong and very courageous that you may observe, obey, to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded thee. Turn not away from the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper whithersoever you go. Observe to do all of it. He's saying, don't turn from the right hand or to the left hand. And people hear that and they cry, legalism. So is being careful to obey the law that it says there, is that legalism? So Thomas and I will go golfing. We don't gamble, but we have a little friendly competition to see who has got the lowest score at the end, don't we? Yeah. So what if we're out there and we're having our little friendly competition and we get on a putting green and every time I get ready to putt, I move my ball four inches closer. Or in my case, I'd probably need to move it about four feet, wouldn't I, to, to get it to where I could actually make a putt. And what if Thomas complained about that? Could I look at him and say, man, you're a legalist. And Thomas would say, no, you're a cheater. <laughs> What do you say? Obey the rules. So we expect to obey the rules when we do things like that, right? Well, what's so legalistic about obeying God's rules or what he wants us to do? So the only reason it's legalism is when you don't have a heart for it. Now, I'm not saying legalism doesn't exist, but I think a lot of what's called legalism is just people that don't have a heart to follow the Lord and live a holy life. 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God. This is the love of God. You say you love God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous or burdensome. And so my whole point in all this is, if we just looked at the law as instruction, loving instruction that will truly make us happy. It'll make us holy and then we'll be truly happy. And that's what God our Father wants. We'd have a different view on what legalism is or isn't, wouldn't we? I think we would. And verse 7 also tells us that we have to take courage to obey that word because if you walk by the way the Bible says and obey God's commandments, you're going to get criticized and you're going to be shunned. You will. All those that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution at school, at work, at social functions. If you're going to be true, if we're going to be true to our commander in chief and obey what he's asking, it will take courage living in this world. So... He doesn't tell Joshua, if you notice there, he told him once to be courageous. And he adds on this time, he says, when you're going to obey my, my word, you need to be strong and very courageous. Because a lot of times it takes more guts to live your convictions in front of people than to go out and get in a fight. You've got to be very courageous. He's telling Joshua, look, I'm telling you right here on this side of the Jordan, on the banks of the Jordan River, you need to take a stand and determine, you and the people, that when you get there across that land, starting right now, you're going to obey the law. You're going to take a stand. And I'm saying that's the best thing to do whenever you meet somebody or you go to school or you're going to a new school. Some people are going to go to college. The best thing to do, George Mueller said this years back, and it's the truth is you take your stand up front and you tell them, look, I'm owned by the Lord Jesus Christ and I am going to obey what he says. You let them know that in your own way. 
Because the longer you try to be their buddy, the harder that gets to be to establish that relationship. You're just better off just getting it out of the way at the beginning and they'll respect you for it. But that's what's going on here. So what's God saying to us today? He's saying when He said to Joshua, there's the land. There's the land. There's your inheritance. It's occupied by enemies. But you will possess it because I've given it to you. Your success, though, it depends on your trust, on my promises, my power, my strength, and my faithfulness. That's what we have to depend on, isn't it? And God says what? But you go in there and you're willing to take your stand and go after those promises, take your possessions. He says, I'll be with you. I'll never fail you as you attempt that. Imagine, you know, it's easy for us, but this, this really happened. Jews are small people. I'm a small person. I got too much Jewish blood in me. And they're looking at these tall people, and there's some warrior coming at you. You think they really did have to somehow stab that guy, figuring he's not going to take my head off first because he's got a longer arm and sword, probably twice as long as that. However, that all worked out. They're putting their lives in their hand, trusting God, weren't they? And they did. They had to see, said, I'll be with you. Don't be dismayed. Be strong and courageous. They needed to hear that. And sure enough, they're finding out as they go against this group, that group, as long as they trusted God and didn't hold back, every foot of the ground they stepped on, Joshua says at the end, that's why we read the end of that book, not one promise failed. Amen. That's right. Nobody lost their head that was trusting the Lord. The key to that is you've got to obey and know my word. Let that word become your guiding light. Don't go to the right hand or the left hand because that is what they did. And everything was short-circuited. No longer did their possessions become theirs. So we need to meditate on that word. Like I said, squeeze all the juice out of it. Let it become part of you. And then God says, I'll prosper you in all I send you to do. Your home, your work, your witnessing, your daily walk, you'll have good success. And we'll end with this. God says in Joshua 23, No, in all your hearts, and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you, and not one of them has failed. Amen? Amen. That's what God's Word says. I just read it. Amen. Praise the Lord. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for the words you've given us here today, and that we can trust, Lord, that your promises are eternal and everlasting, and they don't depend on people, rising, falling, dying, living, that your promises and your faithfulness are always with us, as well as your presence, Lord, that you promise I will never leave you or forsake you, so no matter how dark a night we may be going through, we have that promise that you are with us. You will never fail us. You will never drop us. You will never let us go, Lord, that we're in your everlasting arms, and we thank you for that. And I ask you also, Lord, that... You'll put it in all of our hearts, Lord, to meditate on your word, to turn off the radio, turn off the TV, to turn off those electronic devices, Lord, and meditate and think and chew on your word, Lord, because that is where our life is and will give us a heart to obey you. And I just ask that you'll do that for everyone in here, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.